Hello everyone and welcome to the October 11th edition of the Workop Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A three-judge Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals panel affirmed a federal court dismissal of a lawsuit filed by the American Society of Journalists and the authors and the National Press Photographers Association challenging the state's passage of Assembly Bill 5 and its various amendments. The two organizations challenged the new gig economy law on First Amendment and equal protection grounds. AB 5 and its subsequent amendments now codified at Section 2778 of the California Labor Code provides for certain exceptions to various occupations. Because freelance writers, photographers, and others received a narrower exemption than was offered to certain other professionals, these plaintiffs assert that AB 5 effectuates content-based preferences for certain kinds of speech, burdens journalism, and burdens the right to film matters of public interest. The panel in the published case rejected these assertions and held that Labor Code Section 2778 regulates economic activity rather than speech. The panel said that the new law does not, on its face, limit what someone can or cannot communicate. Nor does it restrict when, where, or how someone can speak. The statute is aimed at the employment relationship, a traditional sphere of state regulation. The panel further acknowledged that although the ABC classification may indeed impose greater costs on hiring entities, such as an indirect impact on speech, does not necessarily rise to the level of a First Amendment violation. Addressing the equal protection challenge, the panel held that the legislature's occupational distinctions were rationally related to a legitimate state purpose. Many amicus briefs were filed in this case by various organizations. Also in the news, a, an employer's constitutional challenge to a safety citation was rejected by a California appellate court. Lion Farms LLC owned and operated a dried-on-the-vine raisin vineyard in Madera County, at which Lyons employee Isaac Ray Barrientos worked. Mr. Barrientos was killed when he lost control of the employer-owned ATV he was riding in the vineyard to service Lyons' portable toilets. The ATV's right front tire hit an I-ring grape stake, ejecting Barrientos off of the vehicle. An autopsy report listed blunt impact thoracospinal injuries and not a head injury as Barrientos' cause of death. He was not wearing a helmet at the time of his fatal accident. While his death was not due to the absence of a head protection, the investigator claimed that wearing helmets while riding ATVs would reduce the inherent risk of head injury. 
And investigators also found that Lyon had no written certification of having conducted a workplace hazard assessment and no requirement that employees wear helmets as PPE while riding ATVs. The company was therefore cited for violation of workplace safety regulations by the Division of Occupational Safety and Health. Lyon challenged the citations and the penalties by filing an appeal with the board. They also engaged the services of a retained industrial safety expert who opined that a helmet would present a hazard in itself and should never be worn while riding an ATV in and under the raisin vine canopy of hanging fruit and canes. This was because a helmet would most probably become tangled within the vines and pull the rider off the vehicle, causing severe injury or death. Following the hearings, the ALJ upheld the citations and reconsideration of the ruling was denied. Therefore, the employer filed its petition for writ of administrative mandate with the Superior Court, and it was denied after a hearing on the merits. The Court of Appeal affirmed the citations in the unpublished case of Lion Farms v. California Occupational Safety and Health. Lion claimed that the Labor Code, particularly with respect to PPE required in the context of ATV usage in agricultural settings, violated Lyon's substantive due process protections because the regulations were unconstitutionally vague and ambiguous. But the Court of Appeal rejected this argument. An administrative regulation violates due process of law if it forbids or requires the doing of an act in terms so vague that persons of common intelligence must necessarily guess at its meaning and differ as to its application. However, in considering a vagueness challenge to administrative regulation, courts do not view the regulation in the abstract. Rather, they consider whether it is vague when applied to the complaining party's conduct in light of the specific facts of the particular case. Standards under a regula regulation may be refined and developed also on a case-by-case -case basis. The Labor Code requirement that employers assess their workplaces to determine if hazards necessitating the use of PPE are present or likely to be present, and if such, such a determination is affirmatively made, select and make available the types of personal protective equipment that will protect affected employees from the hazards identified in the workplace assessment is not impermissibly vague. And now our crime report. Federal prosecutors announced the indictment of 18 former professional basketball players who are accused of submitting fraudulent reimbursement claims for fictitious medical and dental expenses. The alleged ringleader of the scheme was said to be Terrence Williams. He allegedly recruited other NBA health plan participants into the scheme, providing them with falsified invoices to claim medical and dental services that were never rendered. One of the players was Melvin Eli, 
a former Fresno State standout, and another Ronald Glenn Davis, and they will be prosecuted in the Central District of California. The other defendants will be prosecuted in other jurisdictions. Milt Palacio, a defendant, is also a current Trailblazers assistant coach. He was put on administrative leave, leave by the team after being one of the 18 players arrested. The indictment charges the defendants with conspiracy to commit health care fraud and wire fraud in connection with a scheme to defraud the National Basketball Association Health and Welfare Benefit Plan out of nearly $4 million. The National Basketball Association Players Health and Welfare Benefit Plan is a health care plan providing benefits to eligible active and former players of the NBA. The players allegedly engaged in a widespread scheme to defraud the plan by submitting fraudulent claims for reimbursement of medical and dental services that were not actually rendered. Williams orchestrated the scheme and recruited other plan participants to defraud the plan, and he offered to provide them with false invoices to support their fraudulent claims. Some of these invoices came from an unnamed and uh, fraudulent invoices from a dentist, from an unnamed chiropractor, and from also a fraudulent invoices from a dentist affiliated with dental offices in Beverly Hills and from a doctor at a wellness office in Washington State. These fraudulent invoices purported to document that some of the players and, in some cases, members of their families had been recipients of these expensive medical and dental services. But they had not received the services described in these invoices. In many instances, the players are not even located in the vicinity of the service providers on the dates the invoices stated they received medical or dental services. GPS location information or other documents such as flight records show that they were in locations other than the vicinity of the medical or dental offices falsely claimed as the providers of services. Many of these defendants paid Williams kickbacks totaling at least $230,000. Forty-two-year-old Thu Van Lee, an Orange County pharmacist, has been sentenced to 70 months in federal prison for submitting more than $13 million in claims for medically unnecessary compounded medical prescriptions. In addition to the prison term, he was ordered to pay nearly $11 million in restitution to TRICARE, the U.S. military's managed health care plan, and nearly $770,000 in restitution to AMP Plan, that's Amtrak's Employee Health Care Benefit Plan. Lee owned TC Medical Pharmacy located in Corona, California. He pleaded guilty on July 12 to one count of health care fraud. Lee's pharmacy submitted more than $13 million in total claims to TRICARE and AMP Plan. TRICARE paid nearly $11 million, and AMP Plan paid just under $800,000. And Lee, in turn, paid so-called marketers handsome kickbacks of up to 50% of the reimbursements. 
The marketers used personal and insurance information to generate fraudulent prescriptions for compounded medications. Marketers who participated in the scheme solicited beneficiaries of the health plans through misleading cold calls that promised free compounded medications. In some cases, beneficiaries were not contacted at all and simply received expensive medications that they did not order. Back in 2017, a federal grand jury returned an eight-count criminal indictment charging Dr. Basil Hantash with eight counts of healthcare billing fraud. The dermatologist is president and medical director of Advanced Skin Institute on Gear Road in Turlock, California. For about six years, Hantash made insurance reimbursement claims to private insurance companies for performing acne surgeries. In fact, however, he performed only cosmetic procedures known as chemical peels or microdermabrasions. Hantash employed estheticians, estheticians to perform work, but under California law, they are prohibited from performing surgeries. Back in 2014, Anthem Blue Cross audited the Advanced Skin Institute. In response, Hantash allegedly submitted false documents claiming he did the surgeries using surgical blades, when in fact he had not. Then on October 4, 2021, federal charges against Dr. Hantash have been dismissed after the doctor complied with a deferred prosecution agreement in the healthcare billing fraud case. According to the terms of the agreement, Advanced Skin Institute reimbursed more than $92,000 to Anthem Blue Cross and nearly $82,000 to Blue Shield of California. And in medical news, a new study published in the latest issue of the Journal of Occupational and Environmental Medicine assessed the efficacy of a neurocognitive screening evaluation and brief therapy model to improve return-to-work outcomes for workers who experienced mild head injuries. Many patients with work-related mild head trauma show delayed recovery, resulting in significant increases in both medical services and utilization in work leave. Neuropsychological assessment to clarify the extent of cognitive features and psychosocial factors can be used effectively to rule out symptom amplification or magnification and secondary gain issues such as well as to prove additional objective data about subjective distress and cognitive complaints. The current study addressed delayed recovery from mild traumatic brain injury and post-concussional syndrome for 157 injured employees receiving workers' comp benefits. Based on the outcome of neurocognitive assessment, clients were either determined to be at MMI and discharged, or treatment recommendations were made for either mental health or health and behavioral assessment and intervention services. There were also several clients where biopsychosocial factors were identified, which appeared to be affecting the individual's recovery. These would be things such as poor sleep patterns, inactivity, or other health-related behaviors, or anxiety, depressed mood, 
psychosomatic or post-traumatic symptoms, which did not rise to the level of warranting a mental health diagnosis. After the study, overall 155 of the 157 patients, that's 98.7%, returned to work at full duty without further restrictions or accommodations. The findings of the study support the view that prolonged recovery from mild traumatic brain injury and post-concussional syndrome are strongly influenced by psychological factors. Conducting a brief and readily accessible neurocognitive assessment to reassure injured workers that their concerns were being carefully considered and thoroughly addressed appears to have dramatic effects on decreasing chronicity in this study. Research conducted in Southern California has confirmed the dramatic erosion of Pfizer-BioTech's COVID-19 vaccine's protection against breakthrough coronavirus infections. The new study, one of the largest and longest to track the effectiveness of a vaccine in America, found that the vaccine's ability to protect against infection stood at 88% in its first month, then fell to 47% effectiveness after just five months. But even as the Delta variant became the predominant strain across the Southland, the vaccine's effectiveness at preventing COVID-19 hospitalizations held steady at close to 90% for as long as six months. What's more, it maintained that power across vaccine recipients of all age groups. The study, funded by Pfizer and published in the journal Lancet, also provides strong new evidence that the waning immunity against the infection probably would have been seen with or without the arrival of the Delta variant. Researchers found that a research in a fresh inoculation with the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine protected just as well against an infection with the Delta variant as it did with did against infection with other versions of the coronavirus. And the vaccine's ability to keep vaccinated people out of the hospital remained high across a span of time when the Delta variant gained ground in Southern California. And finally, the study found that breakthrough infections were more closely linked to the amount of time that it elapsed since vaccination than they were to the particular viral variant involved. By showing that waning immunity, not the Delta variant, was the likely reason for the rise in breakthrough infections, the study suggests it may not be necessary to reformulate a Pfizer-BioNTech booster that specifically targets Delta. For now, at least a third shot, identical to the first two, would probably extend the vaccine's early record of protection against all strains, including Delta. The protection provided by the Pfizer vaccine beyond six months has been an open question hinted at only by Israeli studies that suggest COVID-19 hospitalization rates rise in those above 60 years of age. And in another recent study, researchers from Emory University and Stanford found that six months after being inoculated with the Pfizer vaccine, roughly half of the 56 young and middle-aged adults had no detectable 
neutralizing antibodies against the SARS-CoV-2 virus. The reduced immunity was particularly dramatic against the coronavirus variant Delta, Beta, and Mu. Our ability to sense heat, cold, and touch is essential for survival and underpins our interaction with the world around us. In our daily lives, we take these sensations for granted. But how are nerve impulses initiated so that temperature and pressure can be perceived? This question has been solved by this year's Nobel Prize laureates, both of them Californians. They identified critical missing links in our understanding of the complex interplay between our senses and the environment. One of the Nobel laureates, University of California, San Francisco, David Julius, utilized capacian, a pungent compound from chili peppers that induces a burning sensation, to identify a sensor in the nerve endings of the skin that responds to heat. And the other, a Scripps Research in La Jolla, California, scientist Ardem Parapapotian used pressure-sensitive cells to discover a novel class of sensors that respond to mechanical stimuli in the skin and internal organs. These breakthrough discoveries launched intense research activities, leading to a rapid increase in our understanding of how our nervous system senses heat, cold, and mechanical stimuli. Prior to these two discoveries, the understanding of how the nervous system senses and interprets our environment still contained a fundamental unsolved question. How are temperature and mechanical stimuli converted into electrical impulses in the nervous system? In the latter part of the 1990s, David Julius saw the possibility for major advancers by analyzing how the chemical compound Capacient causes the burning sensation we feel when we come into contact with chili peppers. Capacient was already known to activate nerve cells causing pain sensations. But how this chemical actually exerted this function was an unsolved riddle. After a laborious search, a single gene was identified that was able to make cells capacient sensitive. The gene for capacient sensing had been found. Further experiments revealed that the identified gene encoded a novel ion channel protein, and this newly discovered capacient receptor was later named TRPV1. When Julius investigated the protein's ability to respond to heat, he realized that he had discovered a heat-sensing receptor that is activated at temperatures perceived as painful. When the mechanisms for temperature sensation were unfolding, it remained unclear how mechanical stimuli could be converted into our senses of touch and pressure. Researchers had previously found mechanical sensors in bacteria, but the mechanisms underlying touch and vertebrae remained unknown. And then Artem Patapoptian wished to identify the elusive receptors that were activated by mechanical stimuli. The breakthrough by Patapoptian led to a series of papers from his and other groups demonstrating that the PIEZO2 ion channel is essential for the sense of touch. 
Mortifor, it was shown to play a key role in the critically important sensing of body position and motion known as proprioception. In further work, PIEZ01 and O2 channels have been shown to regulate additional important physiological processes including <clears throat> blood pressure, respiration, and urinary bladder control. Increased global risk for infectious disease epidemics coupled with state-level legislative trends expanding presumptions for communicable disease means that the burden of related costs may fall more heavily on employers and the workers' compensation system. The COVID-19 pandemic forced employers to examine the impact and mitigation of infectious disease risk in the workplace as never before. It changed the way in which many of us work, at least temporarily, and for others, more permanently, as some organizations make the decision to adopt long-term strategies for their workforce based on lessons learned from the pandemic. And in some cases, it is forcing employers to take on an increasingly larger role in solutioning what has traditionally been a public health issue. The World Health Organization claims that epidemics of infectious diseases are occurring more often and spreading faster and farther than ever in many different regions of the world. The global organization attributes this to a combination of environmental, biological, and lifestyle factors that include increased cross-border travel, urbanization, population displacement due to humanitarian emergencies, conflicts and natural disasters, and unhealthy agricultural and food production practices, just to name a few causes. While traumatic injuries such as sprains, strains, and tears top the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics list of occupational injury types, illnesses directly related to exposure at work comprises about 5% of total occupational injury and illness incidents. It has been estimated in a separate analysis that on-the-job illnesses totals nearly $60 billion a year for both medical and indirect productivity costs. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, the definitions for occupational illnesses were typically quite narrow and predominantly applied to specific industries in which the risk of exposure at work significantly outweighs the risk of exposure in one's daily life. But the legislative trends arising from COVID-19 have been expanded how state, now that states are beginning to look at communicable diseases in the workplace and where the responsibility for related medical costs resides. While the language and approach vary from state to state, 2021 saw a wave of proposals that would put permanent legislation into place allowing injured workers who contract communicable disease in the workplace to file a workers' compensation claim. Presumptions aside, communicable diseases, even those that are not deemed occupational costs to employers, 
significantly in terms cost employers significantly in terms of employee lost time and productivity. Take the common flu for example. Pre-pandemic, the 2018-19 productivity loss estimate due to influenza was $17.6 billion based on a four-day work loss assumption per sick employee. And in other industry news, AM Best is a global credit rating agency, news publisher, and data analytics provider specializing in the insurance industry. According to a new report, underwriters of workers' compensation insurance have consistently generated better underwriting profits than under other property casualty lines of business. And they are again doing so in 2020 amid the pandemic. Underwriting results of workers' comp insurers remained strong in 2020, despite a 10% decline in bottom-line net premiums written, owing to a substantial drop in payrolls during the second quarter of the year. The combined ratio of 91.1% in the workers' compensation segment in 2020 was a few points higher than 2019, but still comfortably under the break-even mark of 100%, reflecting profitable underwriting. Given the decline in premium, expense ratios rose, but the increase was nominal and did not overly dampen underwriting earnings. Premium volume for workers' compensation riders also has been constrained by rate decreases in most states. According to the report, some riders are looking to develop new products and explore new markets and other lines of coverage in those states. Despite the smaller premium base, workers' compensation insurers remained highly profitable in comparison with other property casualty lines. Workers' compensation underwriters have benefited from a decline in lost claims frequency tied to efforts to improve workplace safety. Other factors that have benefited the line's profitability are the declines in fraud, workplace accidents, and defense costs. AMBES also analyzes the overall health of the workers' compensation line of businesses through its workers' compensation composite, which is composed of U.S. companies, including state funds, whose workers' compensation and excess workers' compensation net premiums constitute 50% or more of total net premiums. Even with the 2020 decline in workers' compensation premium due to the pandemic, the market share of these specialists rose 26.2% in 2020, up considerably from 16.7% in 2021. AMBEST's negative market segment outlook for the workers' compensation segment, the largest component of the U.S. commercial lines market, reflects the continued uncertainty about the effects of COVID-19 from an economic and regulatory perspective, as well as a legislative one as states consider presumptive legislation stemming from the pandemic. Moreover, although the impact of the pandemic on insurers' balance sheets to date has been tempered, 
Concerns about the prolonged low interest rate environment persist. As a result, investment returns are expected to remain flat, and insurers may begin seeking riskier investments to generate higher yield. So that's all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news, our podcasts, and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd Scarron, Manukian Langevin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.